Hello, iGaming Intelligentsia. Before we start today's podcast, here is a message from our sponsors. The iGaming Next podcast is made possible with the support from our sponsors at Pragmatic Solutions, leaders in intelligent platform technology. I've been working with Ashley, Lewis and the guys over at Pragmatic Solutions over the last year. And as the early supporter of this podcast, I cannot recommend them enough. The Pragmatic Solutions Player Account Management Platform is an incredibly powerful technology stack for today's gaming business. Their modern modular platform provides all the core services to power your business and their SaaS licensing model allows you to reduce cost and accelerate your strategic goals. Enterprise technology with decades of operational know-how at scale built in. Upgrade your business to the Pragmatic Solutions PAM platform. Visit www.pragmatic.solutions to arrange a platform demo. This podcast is brought to you by Hub88, a lightweight integration platform built on Exilir, offering seamless wallet API for casino operations. It currently interacts with over 50 providers and 2,000 plus games, giving access to many tier one suppliers while also supporting new studios, distribution, and key components such as game engines, provably fair RNGs, RGs, and investments into new startups. To find out more, visit hub88.io. Future trends, deep insights, industry leaders. This is the iGaming Next podcast with your host, Pierre Lint. Tati, my <laughs> man, Theo, how's it going? Hi, how are you, Pierre? I'm great, I'm great. Uh, you know, we were just saying uh, before here, I'm sitting here in Malta. Uh, you know, I'm at the office today, actually. Um, but uh, you're in Madrid at the, at the co-working space uh, over there. Yes, you know, I I would like to do uh, again what we did in the past, uh, having uh, such uh, discussions on a coffee. But uh, we can do it remotely now from Madrid. Uh, uh-huh. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. here, uh, yeah. Around eight months ago. So it's uh, really interesting to do it from yeah. here. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by generally, uh, you know, the current trends and where the world is going and, you know, COVID uh, obviously uh, sped up a lot of development uh, on the digital uh, side of things that anyway kind of would have happened. And, and yes, like you're saying, you know, we've had some nice boat trips out here and me. We, uh, we have met uh, a lot of times in person and that's always preferable, but um, uh, but better than nothing, uh, you know, than, than meeting uh, digitally here as well. But I would love to uh, uh, to start off today just by, by, by having a discussion around this remote work setup that Aspire Global have implemented and particularly yourself you know you're you're the CEO of a listed organization and you live in Madrid which obviously uh, uh, as far as I know Aspire Global doesn't have an office in in Madrid you know and and, uh, you still manage to produce incredibly good numbers for Aspire you know I'm following the the stock price up you know 400% over the last year and things are going great obviously and and so, so yes can you can you talk me through this like how did this decision come about uh, you know, were you nervous? We uh, kind of going really remote, and what's, what's your learning so far? So I can tell you that uh, nervous is uh, it's the opposite than nervousness, uh, <laughs> because uh, it's uh, uh, the ability. You know, when you work in distance, uh, one of the straight rules that we had is to still do every call with a video. So 
you find out that you see the employees more than you saw them before. Because, uh, you know, if you are having those video calls and it uh, doesn't matter if you're now in the middle of uh, lunch or uh, just in the stairs to the second floor, so the video calls, uh, bringing it uh, to be together. So uh, uh, I think it was great or positive uh, trigger by the COVID that uh, I could go and work from wherever, from whenever I want and also uh, to uh, have more abilities to recruit employees. Doesn't matter where they are. Uh, so I think uh, it was challenging in the first few weeks, but mm. since then it's, uh, it's a different world, really, really, yeah. for the positive way. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Super interesting. We are. We are like the. Like I mean, you guys are the pioneers here in like a paradigm shift that I'm sure will be talked about in in uh, some uh, in some decennia. You know, the the first movers who were uh, brave enough to take this step to become a remote first organization. And our, our neighbor here, we, we are in an office hotel. Our neighbors are Rake Tech, uh, mm. who's a leading uh, Agami affiliate. They also took the same step. Uh, to become fully remote, and uh, Oscar, the CEO there, he he talked about the same as 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 you mentioned here, the ability to attract talent, not just from the you know 15 kilometer radius of uh, uh, being okay, okay. around the office, but rather to uh, to reach out to entire Europe, for example, uh, you know, and, and all of a sudden you you can cast your net uh, a lot wider. You know, is that like uh, how has uh, your experience been in that regard, just being able to kind of attract talent to us by global? So, uh, you know, when a company is growing, for example, with Aspire, we, we grew from around 150 employees three, four years ago to more than 500 right now um, with the additional companies that we acquired. So there is this pain of growth. You want to recruit yeah. more talent, more people. But as you said, we wanted to do it in the area of the offices that uh, we had and uh, uh, I think that we saw that uh, we, we cannot fulfill the roles fast enough. Um, so what we did is opening up every or any role that we have, doesn't matter where you are. You, you have two hands, you can type, you have a good mindset, you are creative yeah. enough, join on board. So this is uh, the state of mind. And uh, yeah. yeah, this is how we are acting in the last uh, few months. Yeah. Very, very interesting. I mean, I can, I can just say from my own little bubble here in our company, you know, even us as a events and media organization also took this step now to become remote first as an organization, you know, and, you know, we are only 15 employees now. So, you know, not, uh, not a uh, multi uh, global corporation, but still, you know, uh, from from our end, we had the same challenges as well. That the talent pool for us was very small and limited. And, and when we opened up to become remote first, all of a sudden the doors opened to uh, employ a lot uh, more skillful people. Uh, but it also put a lot of pressure on us, even as a small organization, to update our procedures. You know, so rather than you know having weekly meetings in the uh, in the office next door, and you have these kind of ongoing chats, uh, you know, next to each other at the office and so on and so forth. Uh, it put a lot more pressure to kind of update those uh, structures uh, to bring in more transparency into the organization and how do we do that in a remote first uh, setting and ha have you guys have these like pin pain points as well where 
you have kind of had to reimagine how people align with each other? So, you know, it's a, it's a great point that uh, when, when you said about sharpening a little bit the protocols and processes, so when you don't see everyone uh, face to face and you see them on the video and in a distance, so uh, we needed also to ramp up all the, the leadership in the company to see how we are taking that also to uh, the next level because uh, obviously it needs to create a different style of management, different aspect of uh, procedures, especially if it's a, it's a big organization. So uh, what we did is firstly, to take the management and to train ourselves um, what needs to be changed, what needs to be improved in order to do it better, because it's not only to take a laptop and to work in a distance. You need to do it um, in a good, positive, motivated way to the employees. Um, and you know, I want to say another thing that uh, usually uh, a lot of companies are uh, investing a lot also in the management. Uh, what we did, because we saw that it doesn't going to end when the pandemic ends, uh, we took a step further with the mid-management of the company. It's a level of around 25 uh, employees that are between the management to the entry level, and those are the future management of the company. And we are investing a lot in this tier in order to make sure that they are in their, their own organic team are able to manage it in an efficient way. Um, so yes, it, it is challenged, but very refreshing to the employees. Yeah. Imagine, you know, usually we talk business, business, business. Now it's how to do the business and focusing on how to do it which is refreshing to those uh, managers. Um, so it, it created good motivation for them. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, because it's, uh, you know, it's been done in a very, in, a tra in the traditional way for a long time, how you, uh, how you encourage your managers to uh, take care of their teams with team buildings and, uh, you know, being there for them, always being first at the office and, uh, you know, being in front and so on. And now all of a sudden they, it becomes, it's a new way of being a leader almost, you know, in, in a digital environment. Like uh, you can be a great leader perhaps in person, but not the best leader in a digital environment. And understanding those dynamics, I guess it's going to be, uh, the, the going, to, uh, going to drive the next generation here of leaders uh, as we go forward. Yeah, uh, it's, it's exactly, exactly that. Mm -hmm. You know, if before, in order to uh, show quality to your manager, one of the parameters probably were, I want to be in the office a lot, so everybody see me, I yeah. see everyone, to come early, to be present in all the meetings. And now it, it took it and put quality into yeah. the dynamic. You don't need, yeah. we, we even don't count on the vacations that people are taking because they are committed to the, to the <laughs> delivery of what they need to do. Yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. So it's like, it becomes like, the only thing that matters is the outcome, really. Like yeah, the only thing that matters is what you produce, and kind of how you produce that. It's it's up to you as an individual, as long as you as long as you deliver. Exactly, exactly. So it gives a lot of uh, strength and power and uh, authority uh, mm. to a lot of layers that before were dependent on their boss. Mm. 
Um, yeah. So uh, it, it's good uh, for us in, in this timing. Yeah. It helps us a lot. Yeah, very cool. Uh, and so, so uh, Sasha, like, can you uh, can you talk a bit more, like, you know, what um, what like before this decision came into play? Obviously, a pandemic hit last year. Uh, you know, everyone was uh, wanted to kind of figure out how are we going to tackle this uh, situation and, and so on and so forth. Like, uh, can you talk a bit like what were from operational hindsight? Like, what did you learn from COVID in general? Like, uh, did you have any like organizationally? Uh, was this a quite straightforward change where you you went remote and you just noticed straight away everything's working great? And or did you have any challenges uh, along the way? The majority of the challenges that we had is uh, on the security level. To right. ask ourselves 10 times more questions <laughs> if the security that we have uh, of the laptops, of the mobile, of the information transferred from each one to another, is it in the right secure way uh, and in the standard that we had uh, prior to having all the company working remotely? So this were this point is where we focused a lot in the beginning of the pandemic and all the time do those penetration check and uh, 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 jumping on the different laptops of employees to to make sure that nothing is being leaked out. So this is the majority of the challenge, and uh, we invested much more in security in 2020 than uh, we invested uh, before. That's interesting to hear, you know, and I, I guess it's also spurred on by the fact that it feels like just these uh, company hacks are on the rise in, in general. You hear quite a lot, you know, there was the SolarWinds hack, uh, obviously, that uh, came to light in December. So, so I don't know if you're aware of that situation, but it really it really exposes how, um, uh, you know, how fragile the system uh, is uh, security-wise that uh, the SolarWinds hack will basically, uh, it's basically, the long story short, it was like a, a group of Russian state-sponsored hackers, uh, that is the leading theory at least, uh, that managed to hack a security company and uh, thereby get an access to all the clients of this uh, security uh, IT security company called SolarWinds, uh, then thereby getting access to um, unknown amounts of data to most of the tech companies and the government institutions in the United States, uh, you know. Uh, so. So it, it, it started probably happening more and more in the beginning of the pandemic. And I can tell you that it also happened in our industry. Uh, I think it was a very known issue of uh, SB Tech that uh, were right. act and uh, were not available uh, for their operators for, I think, around between a week to two weeks, which oh is a, disaster. a real crisis uh, yeah. to, uh, to manage. So I think it was also a trigger to make sure yeah. that everything is connected that <laughs> nothing is uh, you, you know you never know you know yeah. what the hacker is uh, preparing but uh, at least it took it to be in a, a, a much more in the focus than it was before yeah yeah exactly and uh, you know it's uh, the, the more and more the more a complex organization an organization becomes especially an IT company the more potential weak points uh, th there are as well, right? And it's just enough with uh, one weak point. And th there was like this famous example just uh, recently, there was uh, a company that got hacked through the through the thermostat of an aquarium in the office. 
yeah, uh, you know, whatever. But that aquarium was like, uh, was like connected to the Wi-Fi, and then through the Wi-Fi, managed to, you know, it, you know, it's like that was the weak point. You know, it doesn't matter then if you invest uh, five hundred yeah. million in. You know, when you see the trend of the security budget in our company, for example, so the security officer three years ago were, was happy with 150,000 euro budget. Yeah. Now it's uh, closer to the million and he's uh, disappointed. He wants more. <laughs> yeah. we, we all want more, I guess. <laughs> Brilliant, uh, uh, you know, from from one thing to the other here, you know, it'd be uh, it'd be really interesting to hear, you know, you. Thank you, by the way. You were in our panel last week at the at the digital event here, discussing the meteoric rise uh, of um, uh, you were you were in in one of the panels here last week, uh, and uh, I'm really curious to hear. Uh, your take on just the meteoric rise on investments into the gaming industry in general, uh, you know, uh, we've seen, you know, Aspire Global, for example, up 400% more or less um, over the last year and a half or so. Um, that is uh, also followed by most of the other operators and suppliers of the industry. Evolution is a Chinese example here, of course, and, and, and others as well. Um, can the meteoric rise continue? Um. <laughs> You know, it's a, 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 the trend is continuing and uh, we see it, but I think that the, the triggers for it uh, are coming from uh, unexpected uh, uh, reasons. You know, one trigger uh, is uh, the move of the land base to the online. So if before they did it in their own way and they didn't see the, the, the stress to do it, so uh, now they are much more stressed to move online. So I think this is one of the triggers to continue the, the rise of the iGaming. And the second is um, the regulations that are happening in Europe uh, are triggering a lot of operators to look outside of their comfort zone. And uh, this is where I think the emerging markets are coming into uh, effect where now companies are looking how to grow in Colombia and how to grow in Latin America and America as a whole and maybe in Africa you know uh, before Africa was uh, you know maybe in 10 years we will go in so I think those two triggers of land-based moving to online and operators looking for the new income stream in emerging markets will make the trend of uh, iGaming growth to continue. Right, interesting. So it's uh, the geographical diversification uh, here that is the key to this material price. And, you know, looking back a couple of years, you know, you had uh, the, um, the operators like uh, Leo Vegas, the Betsons and so forth, very focused on a certain key markets. You know, let's say like Leo Vegas, you know, the top three markets were, you know, a massive lion share of their revenue. And, uh and what you are saying now is basically that i i guess maybe maybe we should thank sweden in some respect for uh, for regulating and, and basically making it clear to everyone that overnight things can change very rapidly in in a market on the in the in the in the landscape that we look at now you have to diversify in order to uh, protect your revenue but also then you know there are these uh 
uh, opportunities in the in in the emerging markets like you mentioned Africa, Latin, and so on and so forth. Like, how, how has your you know, first of all, like, does this make sense? What I'm saying? Did, did you notice this as well from the Swedish regulation came into play? And I have your mindset uh, changed? It's a combination of uh, Sweden, but not, not only. I think mm -hmm. it was uh, Sweden. It's four markets did um, a, a big movement or change in the last uh, two years. Uh, it's uh, Sweden is one of them. Netherlands is the second. Uh, Germany with uh, the last six months. Uh, you know, limiting the players a lot and having a, a, a slowdown between a, a one bet to another, removing a live dealer in the beginning, um, and the UK. So it's those four markets in Europe that were where everybody focused in the last five years, uh, I think That's pushed a lot of operators uh, to do one of the two. One is to look outside, in those emerging markets, which the growth will happen there, but a little bit slower. Uh, and second, to do acquisitions, like the Betson acquiring Gig, like mm -hmm. um, uh, Leo Vegas acquiring uh, uh, Xpact, I think, is the, the, the sports operator, uh, I forgot the name. Um, so to do acquisitions in Europe, in order to uh, uh, not to have a slowdown in income in Europe. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, how I see the the trend uh, right now. Right, right, right. Interesting. And so, uh, obviously, you you would think that in the emerging markets, uh, Latin, North America, Africa, Asia, uh, there is a lot more to work to do there. Essentially, like what's what's our for you for you for Aspire? What are the most interesting uh, emerging markets that you see? So, uh, you know, if I will zoom in on Africa, for example, uh, in Africa, you cannot go and just uh, open a brand, have a strong marketing team and do TV campaigns and affiliation and grow. It doesn't work like this. Um, it's different. You need more connection to the retail. You need to have retail products in order to engage with the local market even better. Um, so uh, this is something that uh, we see at least in Aspire, the advantage of having products that are matching to the, uh, this local market. Uh, this is in Africa. If I will go to North America, you know, North America is not only the US market, it's also the, the Canadian market with the lotteries inside, the states inside yeah. going, uh, you know, uh, online slowly. Uh, so you need to have a very broad due diligence on the company and, and you need to commit to a lot of things. So there are different aspects of preparation from a company perspective if you want to approach those emerging uh, markets. It's not just to copy the European product, change the language, add currency, and that's all. <laughs> Even another, you know, I will give you another example, which is yeah. people don't think about it, but the scalability of the product, uh, having able to receive in Africa, for example, let's take Nigeria. The, the average bet in Nigeria can be 0 0.1 cent uh, per dollar. <laughs> now you have hundreds of thousands of players playing, 
So you need your IT infrastructure, whether it's in the cloud or on-premise, to be able to accept those hundreds or millions of players playing each one of them 0 0.1 or 2 cent uh, euro. Um, so, so it's a lot of aspects that uh, uh, need to take into consideration when you enter those uh, markets. Yeah, and it, it adds a lot of complexity to the organization, I would, I would imagine. Like this diversification is not for small operators, and by the sounds of it, like uh, you need to treat uh, the emerging markets uh, very individually, right? So they all have their own requirements and operationally, you need to be an expert in all these fields. And uh, it's uh, difficult to tackle the entire world, I would imagine, with, with these services. With the same operation, yeah. It's totally yeah. like this. So it's an yeah. opportunity to grow, yeah. but it, it's, uh, it's yeah. triggering it's cool. you to, to think differently yeah. a little bit, not yeah. in the, to be innovative in the product. You don't need to be innovative, yeah. but to approach it differently because things that are less important in Europe are a must in those markets. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so I, say, I mean, uh, maybe I'm a, it's a bit naive statement or whatever, but uh, I, I really, uh, you know, I've been in the industry for a long time as well, since uh, 2005 or something along those lines and in and around, and I've seen the industry grow. And uh, it's very much been a feeling that uh, it's been a constant honeymoon uh, for the agami industry uh, for a very long time until, you know, the, the European markets became locally regulated. And, uh, you, you know, you were in that panel that we had just before the pandemic that was actually titled this, uh, um, you know, or, or is the honeymoon over? The end of the honeymoon, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. And um, it was very much feeling that, like, uh, now, you know, the honeymoon is over uh, about a year and a half ago. And, um, and uh, now it's time for the, the real competence to shine, you know, how can we uh, start diversifying the revenue streams? And in fact, you know, 2019 was not the best year for the industry, uh, you know, declining revenues and so forth. But it seems we a lot like the industry have adapted now into this uh, diversification. Do you get the same feeling as well? Um, I get the same feeling, but uh, I think that uh, one of the items that I mentioned in that panel, and I'm happy that it's yeah. proving to be um, to prove itself. To prove itself, is that you know there are two aspects. One is to uh, to go from the honeymoon to another honeymoon of uh, unregulated markets, and to try yeah. and generate those revenues and profit in those right. unregulated markets. I think right, differently right. because it's a very short term. I yeah. think that uh, the companies that uh, you know the, the wave of regulation. The wave is, is here and it's going to go all over the place. All the markets, right. all the countries at the end will be regulated. Whether it will take two years, five years or 15 years or 30 years, they will yeah. be regulated. There will be some challenges. And uh, as early as the companies will, will be able to change the state of mind and think really long term, so they will they will be in a very good strong honeymoon years from now really because it will be only yeah. them uh, they're, they're unregulated and the black are shrinking you can do a lot of income there in the short term yeah but the the, the availability the potential is only shrinking as the time goes yeah. by
you know, yeah, also so Sweden, you, you... also Sweden. Everybody talks about the fact that 60-70% of the market only is regulated. Okay. Exactly. So maybe in two, three years, the, uh, the, the government will change the rules and it will go up again to 89%. It will happen. It will not stay 50% right. forever. So if you want to take advantage, advantage and win now with the unregulated in Sweden, do it. But it will not last forever. Yeah. Right, right, right. That being said, uh, uh, Germany, obviously uh, imposing the 5.3% uh, tax on turnover, which is uh, seen by the industry, I, I presume, as, um, uh, as completely, um, you know, un unrealistic, let's say, and it will only hurt the players. Uh, how do you view future profitability in Germany with this seemingly uh, unrealistic tax? So I will answer through two different aspects. One, Germany is probably not the country that someone wants to play with and to try <laughs> and uh, do it, right. you know, on, on not on the right uh, and uh, legal aspect. Right. Germany is not a small country that you want to fool and then everybody can do it. So from that perspective, I think, uh, a lot of operators in the long term will need to be, you know, nobody wants to take on himself a risk that he will not be able to fly in Europe because of not applying the bet limits. This is one thing. Uh, the second, uh, it's also the taxing that you mentioned is triggering companies to try and think differently. You know, I, I'm not about, and you know, I think that you would be happy if I was sharing here the formula and the secret of how Aspire is going to have a very taxed, very positive and uh, 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 effective low tax in Germany, we're right. filling on all the rules and we are keeping it for the last moment in order to uh, uh, see how we can gain operators taking our product, uh, but if you will think out of the box, there are ways to do those 5% on turnover. Not as dramatic as it sounds. Wow, that's interesting. So uh, keep an eye on what's going to be uh, announced at some point, then, in other words. Yeah, we are going to uh, do it on uh, on a one-on-one -on -one with operators to right. give them the simulation uh, of how the tax is going to uh, be uh, uh, calculated and uh, done. Um, and uh, and to to hope and gain a lot of uh, operators taking our products because of it. Yeah, that's interesting. So it, so this can generate a competitive advantage, really. You know, it, it's so interesting. It's, it's like um, you know, some people they see a problem, and you, you see an opportunity here. It's an opportunity, and it's also taking advantage of the fact that Aspire Global today own the full value chain of products. So we are able to think together, all of us inside the group of companies and product. And when we are coming up with a solution, so fast enough, everybody can contribute their development, their mindset into this feature, this solution, and to do it fast. And so we are going to take advantage of, of that. 
<laughs> but I mean, honestly, I mean, this is literally what distinguishes, you know, mediocre companies in general from successful companies. It's like uh, when, when 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 some people see problems, others see opportunities. You know, and we see that so clearly now during the pandemic as well. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, some companies, some uh, individuals, uh, they do see a problem. They uh, they they they, uh, they take a step back or they slow down or they. Oh, they go to the black whatever. market. They go to the black market, right? Yes. And uh, and then others just face it head on and like, no, this is an opportunity for us to have a competitive advantage. I I I, lo I love hearing this uh, uh, type of initiative. So uh, yeah, congratulations on on that. Side. I'll be it'll be interesting to follow up on this perhaps at some point when you can talk uh, more about it. But uh, uh, interesting to hear. And I just want to nail down the point you mentioned as well about uh, Germany not being a country that you want to. Uh, you know, circumvent, let's say, or try to to go around. I know as well, you know, from uh, I know personal friends uh, actually, and uh, people in the industry who have gotten legal letters uh, from uh, the German state. Uh, you know, basically uh, threatening not the company but the individuals who work yeah. within the company with legal action, and uh, that is not a fun letter to get. You know, if you're an employee within an organization, of course. Uh, exactly. So, uh, so you're absolutely right. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. So uh, people will need to be pushed to do uh, things differently and not uh, run to the known solutions they did for other markets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, another thing I'm, I'm really curious about jumping over the pond uh, here to the other side of the Atlantic is the US market. And, uh, I had a I did a podcast with your good friend uh, Dima Riederman here the other week actually we talked a lot about US with uh, Bitbet uh, obviously that you acquired uh, last year uh, entering the the US market on a B two B level uh, so I would love to ask you again just on a Aspire global from my from a global level of your organization uh, is your strategy within US to um, enter it as a B two B only or are you also interested in entering uh, as a B two C? Um, so. Uh... In regards to Aspire Global uh, in the U.S. market, um, there are two things that uh, uh, we wanted to be prepared with before we are entering to the U.S. market. One of them is that you cannot enter to this market with only one product. If you have only gaming platform or you have only casino content or only a, a, a sports solution. I think that it's important to enter this market with more than one product, especially for a company in our size that is not the biggest company in the world. Not yet. Um, so <laughs> this is why we uh, acquired Pariplay with uh, quality content games and aggregation, and we acquired Bitobet and that we have sport. We have our uh, historical uh, gaming platform and uh, managed services. So now, we are entering with all those products into the US. Uh, and if an operator wants one product, perfect. We will try to sell as many in order to increase the wallet share in each operator. This is one thing. The second thing that is interesting in the US, and you asked about how to enter, if it's B2C or B2B, it's a very B2C market. And um, you can see the, those 10 operators in the US that are controlling around 75, 80% of the GGR. So to enter as an operator or uh, you know, to be with a B2C operation, 
it's not easy. And you probably will not be able to take market share from those 10 huge operators. So the strategy of Aspire is not to focus on those 10 operators that will control 75% of the GGR. We want to be the number one that control the 25% of the GGR that the tier two, tier three, tier four operators will want to uh, engage with. Because don't- Yeah, don't, on a B2B level, yeah. On a B2B level, because think about it. Also those 10 operators at the end, if it will take one year or two years or three, they will want to own their own technology. They don't want mm -hmm. to buy exactly. their technology year after year. Uh, it doesn't make sense for them. And the US operators think differently than Europe. They will own their technology. So we don't yeah. want to engage with a tier one operator. And then after a year, he will buy his own product. So we are tackling the B2B only. And the 25% market share that will not be owned by the tier one operators. Interesting. Um, I mean, it must be it must have been some pretty lengthy discussions <laughs> within your offices to uh, to uh, you know are we going to enter B2C level because uh, you know it is the market is dominated by these massive you know let's say top ten uh, operators and to enter the US market on a B2C level, I, I heard some estimate now. It was, the, I think it was Morgan Stanley, uh, the guy from Morgan Stanley in the event last week uh, at Agamemnon X2 mentioned that um, they don't expect profitability until 2024, something along those lines. But, but now we're talking about not just not expecting profitability, but at the moment there is some massive losses that they are making in order to gain that profitability in 2024. It's not easy, obviously, to carry those losses, especially if you're not the biggest in the world yet. Of course, and they, they, yeah. they are acquiring players yeah. with a cost of acquisition that is not connected yeah. to the yeah. value of what this player will generate. Not right. connected, it's not even close. Right. So yeah. if you say 2024, if I were them, I would buy this uh, predict prediction for 2024. If they yeah. will continue as it is, it will be even more than that. Yeah. because uh, they want only market share right now. And they will do so through marketing, heavy marketing, and they yeah. will want to acquire their own technology. You know, yeah. see, see DraftKings. Think about Aspire that if I was able to have a sportbook, my sportbook being sold to DraftKings, and then they were acquiring SB Tech. It's not easy now to have this amount of royalties being received by DraftKing going away. And DraftKing is the first one. Bali Games is the second. Now do those right. 10 operators one by one. In the next two years, one by one. This is uh, how, how I see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it makes sense. And the, and the, um, the US market is changing the dynamics of how an operator operates. Uh, I, I guess, like you were saying, the DraftKings and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, the FanDuel's and uh, the MGM and so on and so forth, yeah. they want to control the the operation from all angles, right? They don't want to work with and, suppliers. And, and... and this is one thing, they want to control it. And until they will control it, they will squeeze the price of the third party technology they are using 
So this was the main reason for Aspire when we entered the US. We want to have many products and services. So we will be able to sell not only one that will be squeezed in the price. If we will right. take five of our products, we are able to give him a good price if he's right. taking more products from us. So right. it's a different aspect than, than, than the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and you know, it's, uh, there's been the, uh, the Betsons, the Leo Vegas, the, uh, the Kinder, the obviously who, are, who, who would be seen as tier two operators, I would guess, uh, who are entering uh, that market. They, they, do, they do press releases, they get uh, some, they get some good, um, uh, good PR and, and uh, investors are happy and so on and so forth, but it's not necessarily a, a, a straightforward win, let's say. It's a, you could make the argument that it's a bit of a gamble for these operators to uh, invest so heavily, especially when they are not, like I said, the tier ones, right? And it's, and it's a double risk, Pierre. It's a double risk yeah. because from one side, it doesn't mean that if they are entering the door of the US, they will be as successful as they were in Europe. This is right. one risk. And the second risk is in Europe because you are now shifting your focus into right. a different jurisdiction, very big difference in time zone and you are about to not forget but to to treat differently to your bread and butter so if companies yeah. will not do it in the right way it's a very risky uh, step to the yeah. future yeah so interesting with the u.s dynamics just changing the industry like this and really you know organizations are choosing now uh, very difficult decisions that will that will uh, basically lay the foundation of the future of the organizations in one way or the other and um, because it's a commitment you know it's a it will change the organizations and you, you know th th that uh, leads me to another question for you Chachi, you know what, what is the vision for aspire global in the long term here for, because for me it sounds very much like i think if i remember the last quarterly report right i think you have something like two-thirds of your revenue coming from b2b and a third from B2C. And it sounds very much, you know, you're acquiring on the B2B side, you're going into the US on the B2B side. Is, uh, is, is the future of Aspire Global more and more on the B2B side in general, if you like? And in general, what's your vision, you know, for the organization? So the, the vision is uh, to be one of the biggest uh, gaming suppliers in the world, really. And, and we know that in order to do it, we will probably need to have more than one, two, three products. This is why we acquired Pariplay. This is why we acquired B2Bet. And this is why we will not end the story here. We will continue to acquire more products that we will feel giving us the ability to control more in the value chain and offer more products that anyone can take it. Doesn't matter where he is in the globe. This is one thing. And in order to support it, um, we need to focus even more on the technology, on the quality of it, or to prepare it to the different regulated markets. So this is why we, um, two months ago, a little bit maybe less than two months ago, we released um, a press release uh, about reviewing our B2C uh, in, uh, in Aspire Global. So uh, there is, this is on the table right now. Uh, we are reviewing it with different angles. What to do with the B2C, how to from one point of view, enabling Aspire to focus more on the technology and the B2B products. And from the other side, 
not to arm the B2C because it's growing nicely, especially after everybody saw the Q1 where the B2C is really rising nicely, so to continue the growth of the B2C. Yeah. So the question is how to do it in the best way possible. So um, to answer your question, our vision is on the B2B side. We are yeah. considering how to review the B2C and that perspective. Um, and uh, we really look forward um, to be in that size that you will talk to me. We will do another coffee in four, five years from now. And you will see, wow, it's a, it's a huge company that you used to see our one floor office five yeah. years ago. And now it's, uh, it's something different. You have your own tower, the Chelsea Tower. <laughs> yeah. so, so we are working hard to execute uh, the, yeah. the strategy yeah interesting yeah so in in so so, so yeah so the strategy the, the the business development is largely happening on the on the b2b uh, side here but then uh, again maintaining b2c and making ensuring that the numbers still deliver and, and so on and so forth so it sounds um it sounds a little bit like you are kind of uh, heading towards a position like playtech ish kind of thing whereas doing both b2b b2c Obviously, they have a two billion dollar market cap, something along those lines. And uh, your vision here is essentially to uh, overtake, become one of the biggest ones. Yes. If so, I understand. Yes, and, and interesting about Playtech that you mentioned, um, their valuation decreased dramatically from the three billion that they were to around one point four, one point three, or something. All like right, this. around there. Yeah. Mainly because their big chunk of income was coming from Asia. And when you are doing it in Asia, in an unregulated dynamic, right. one operator or two operators can switch in one day their revenues. This is what happened with Playtech. Yeah. Um, so it's shrinking their valuation toward the shareholders. And uh, by the way, Playtech is uh, perceived as a B2B company, but the majority of the income, just so you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how they they are perceived, but the majority is B2C. Yeah. All right, uh, I didn't yeah. know that actually. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that that drives down the point, I guess, which is, uh, as you mentioned, the uh, you know you could choose to go on to, onto the uh, unregulated markets, uh, but um, naturally that could very well turn out to be a, a short-term uh, strategy, as we have seen here with with JTEC, You know, I mean, they, they are great people there working there, and uh, and I know that they their strategies to kind of I turn that around. <laughs> I used to work. Oh, you used to work at yeah. All right. <laughs> That's the background. I, I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, what did you do at Playtech? I was uh, their head of, uh, you know, Playtech had B2B and B2C. So for their B2C, yeah. I was the head of Casino uh, back then. All oh, right. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, fun fact. <laughs> uh, no, and there's great people there. And I know that, you know, Playtech have had a certain reputation. And I, I know that they have trying to turn that around. And sometimes you have to take a step back in order to take two steps forward, you know? Exactly. So, uh, exactly. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure they are keeping a close eye on what you guys are doing on as well. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the former employee uh, <laughs> taking over. And, <laughs> interesting. Uh, you know that that leads into uh, into the topic of ESG. I think uh, quite closely here because um, I think that ESG is uh, you know the rise of ESG led investments is something that have hurt the agri industry uh, in the last uh, seven or eight years or so. Um, 
and you know largely because of of, of this the industry hasn't been uh, responsible at large uh, with uh, you know gaining a, a lot of um, a lot of revenue from unregulated markets uh, not the best track record in playing uh, protecting its players and so on and so forth and um, however you start seeing now that a lot more listed organizations are really starting to take ESG uh, driven Not agendas seriously. Uh, seriously. Yeah. Uh, so I'd love to ask you, you know, what's your, what's, what's your take on ESG in general, where the trend is heading, where, where is the future? And also how do you guys tackle this as a spy global, you know, cause it's a difficult thing for the, for an individual argument company to fight against. It's correct. It's not an easy thing that you you woke up in the morning and thought about it uh, back then. Yeah. Um, luckily for Aspire, we uh, are listed in the Swedish in the Stockholm Stock Exchange, and I can yeah. say that the, the Swedish Stock Exchange was uh, on par uh, from other stock exchanges in Europe, also in the US, and um, they were the one to lead the way. So. What we see now from uh, several companies, Aspire Global already presented to investors two years ago, our program and planning and projects uh, in the environmental and uh, any uh, social and, and government initiative that, uh, that we have. Um, this year, it was uh, the second year that we released in the annual report, our sustainability a report, right. very thorough one, uh, this being uh, managed by Lisbeth, that is doing a great job by taking the company state of mind and shifting it that we can succeed even with it. See it as an opportunity, how to do it in a better way. Um, and she's doing it amazing. She, she, she's teaching me and the board how to do it. Um, and she did me as well. I mean, she always comes into our chats to give me next uh, clubhouse chats and everything. Always, always, always out there to promote. Like, yes. like really comes up to Lisbeth Oost. Yes, and you know, she, she understands the fear of the operation to lose income because of it. And, yeah. and with her calmness and creativity and taking us step by step. Uh, so I think that the, uh, the, the status of where Aspire Global is now because of those two things. One is Sweden being really advanced in that aspect and uh, the management that we put in place with Lisbeth, we were showing uh, good results from that perspective. Yeah. yeah. Sweden leading the way, like always. <laughs> in some uh, aspect. In some aspect, yeah. Okay, let's, 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 let's stop the debate. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, so on the ESC side, I think it's interesting. I mean, the, so we've seen the outflux of uh, of capital from uh, ESG funds and banks, who are traditionally been um, have some of the largest shareholding in in the uh, in the agaming industry organizations. Do you think there is a way to turn it around? Will will yeah. we will will individual organizations like Aspire Global be able to be a attractive um, opportunity for ESG funds? And what does it take? Take time. Only time, yeah. only, you know, to, to show them uh, that, uh, uh, you know, through the sustainability report, through the operations, through the constant growth in regulated markets, um, and the ability also to give up on revenues because you want to be more 
uh, social, more responsible towards your partners and players, I think that uh, they will not be able to shut their eyes for a very long time from companies that are delivering growth, dividend, at the end they want also to deliver to their uh, yeah. customers or whoever they, uh, and, dividend, and companies that pay dividend are important and the gaming companies um, are paying dividend. So I think in the long term, um, it will go back and uh, so I don't see it as a shut door for, forever. No. Yeah, you know, there's an um, interesting statistic on the SGC side that uh, one third of all funds under uh, management at the moment in the world is under ESG uh, funds. Uh, and that, that equates to something like $40 trillion or something along those lines. And obviously the trend is just heading upwards, right? Um, and that has spurred some quite interesting change, you know, to the to the most least likely organizations in the world to basically take ESG uh, serious as a fundamental part of the organization. I, I left this up as an example uh, to, to bring up uh, Shell, it's an oil and gas company, right? Now Shell, as an oil and gas company, have have committed themselves to uh, to to be a zero uh, to 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 basically how do you say a zero uh, emitted uh, company in by 2050. So by 2050 they will be carbon neutral. It's like Shell, like the world leading uh, oil and gas company. Like that's how important it is these days to to have an ESG agenda. Because if you don't, then you are left behind, right? And the, the, the trends couldn't be more clear, you know? It's clear. So it's and, interesting. Uh, yeah. I believe also the US uh, will be there soon in gaming. Um, so it will be also an advantage for the European uh, companies. When they are entering the US, they're already behind it. They, they, they uh, excuse yeah. me, in front of it. So, so they will be yeah. able to adapt uh, faster exactly. than the... the locally uh, uh, suppliers and operators yeah I, exactly because it's like you're saying sweden specifically uh, perhaps would you know it, it globally a third of all assets under management is csg driven but in sweden particularly that uh, number might be uh, even higher i'm just speculating <laughs> no, but uh, but what you're saying is that you know in Swe sweden has had this uh, esg agenda uh, for it's been on the agenda for longer let's say uh, than the US, for example, and that is just a, a lagging trend in the rest of the uh, in the rest of the world. Yeah, interesting. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, another thing that I I wanted to lift up here as well uh, today, chat is um, is uh, diversity and inclusion, right? And talk about you know trends from the Nordics. I think that is uh, another one that uh, the the Nordic region has been leading the way over the last. Uh, let's say 10, 20, 30, 40 years or so. Uh, and um, in the agami industry, uh, the, the, it seems very much like uh, the industry is really leading by example with the diversity and the inclusion because uh, 10 or so years ago, I remember that if you looked at an agami organization, you would see, you know, I work for Betson and in my team, for example, there were like 15 people and 14 were Swedish, you know, and, and uh, 14 were, uh, predominantly male dominated and so forth and now that is that is a trend that is really uh, changing in the in the industry and that is talked about a lot and i would love to hear your 
thoughts on diversity and inclusion and how you approach it as Aspire Global? Um, so we, because of the growth pain that we have, right. we didn't have the luxury and we are not evolution and yeah. we are not Playtech and we are not Netent, those names that attract yes. uh, the talent in front of the others. We are not there yeah. yet. Um, so it triggered us to also here to try and see, okay, there doesn't matter where the employee or the talent is. Doesn't matter the gender. You know, even I will give you an example, even without addressing it, because it, it, it didn't uh, something that we, we were thinking of. Um, but if you will take the promotions, the internal promotions in Aspire Global, the female promotions in the last three years doubled every year. And this trend oh. of uh, equity and equality was not there three years ago. So we started it already there, but not intentionally. Um, because of the growth pain, because we want good people to be on the wheel. So, uh, you know, we had our head of operation was a male. Nine years in the role, he left to another company. Immediately, we took his uh, uh, reporting, his report. Is uh, She's a female, Ruth. She's amazing. And we didn't even think twice if to bring from the outside so we have in our operation, the head of operation, female, the head of retention, VIP, female, most of the shift managers, female. Amazing. So yeah. without taking a lot of, uh, you know, uh, initiatives around it, it's already there. Um, and I said in the beginning, also with recruitment, doesn't matter where you are, what language you speak, you are able to communicate, you're good enough, you have a good, positive state of mind. Come on, let's go. In, yeah. in, in five of the new departments that we launched, the team leader or the manager is one that was only six months ago, just one of the team. So uh, uh, we are happy to do it. It's for a company that is yet not a strong brand out there, I think it's, yeah. uh, um, it's the only way. Yeah, yeah, you know, just pushing uh, equal opportunity within the organization that uh, uh, the culture should basically, what you're saying is the culture should be so that we don't care uh, if you're a man or a woman, we don't care where you're from. Uh, if you're confident, you do a great work, we'll do everything we can to, uh, to give you the platform to grow. Yes, yeah. you know, yeah. our compliance officer, the MLO, it's a female working yeah. alone in the UK without an office because she's so good. She's doing it from <laughs> there. You know, I, I couldn't find a man or male that will do it in the office in Malta or yeah. here or wherever. No, she's amazing. I don't care that she's in the, she will do it from there. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And I love that this is something, you know, that our good friend, uh, Lisbeth, uh, who's, uh, she's very passionate for uh, for these uh, questions as well. And, and, you know, she wrote to me last week and uh, asked me as well, you know, because in the in the online event that we organized, there were a lot of talk about, uh, uh, about diversity and inclusion. And she asked me, basically, uh, let's put together, you know, all these, um, 
all this discussion that we're happening into into kind of one video and we we, we publish it online because it it is an important discussion uh, to have you know because even though uh even though you guys you know have have been able to create this um uh, culture within your organization uh this there could still be biases uh, here and there and the, 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 there is questions that we should be aware of, we should talk about them and we should become better and so on and so forth so so uh, it's great that you have that you let these voices really uh be top of the agenda you know people like lisbeth and give them a platform uh to discuss these uh these issues so uh, yeah good work for, for that Chelsea. I, thank you uh, i respect you for that um as a as a bit of a rounding off uh, today perhaps uh Chelsea. it's been a great call we've already chatted for an hour here by the way <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> amazing you know how these things uh, go but i'd love to uh, to ask you as well, just uh, on the trends in general of the agame industry, you know, wh wh what important trends do you see at the moment uh, in the industry? Um, so I think there are two uh, trends that uh, uh, that are happening. One is in the U.S. market, where, uh, as I mentioned before, is a trend of those big operators acquiring their own technology, and it will shape up how the B2B approach to the market will happen. So need to be careful in that aspect. And the second trend that I see is that the European operators doing acquisition in Europe in order to maintain their growth in Europe, because it's not easy to grow without an acquisition because their focus is on the US or because of the regulation, they have less revenue from the regulated market. So they need to acquire companies in Europe in order to grow. So I see acquisitions of European operators within Europe and acquisition of technology in the US market. This is um, mm. the, the two uh, trends that uh, we are identifying right now. Yeah, so you see the industry heading towards consolidation. You know, will we see in a couple of years time that uh, there will be a, the spaces there for the, the major few organizations? So there was uh, a panel uh, last uh, week. I remember. Uh, yeah, that uh, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Marco Polo, uh, the, the, uh, the the founder of Mr. Green. I forgot the name. Uh, yeah, Michael Pablo. Yes. Yes. So he said something very nice. He said, every year we think that this is the year of the consolidation. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I think that the last 12 months showed that it's accelerating. It's in a, it's uh, it's boosting up more and more because of the U.S. market and the regulations. So there is, uh, uh, I think, more than what we used to see until now. So I need to answer in the same trend as the last 10 years. I think we are going to have a lot of consolidations in the next two years. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a great way to end the, end the, the podcast today, I think. Uh, Chelsea? I mentioned it to you uh, before the podcast, but this was long, long, long overdue uh, to, to sit down together. And uh, I hope that uh, we can meet in person again soon as well. Um, it's been a long time, you know, I saw you on the street, but that was a long, long time ago as well. So um, thank you for doing this today, you know, and, and uh, uh, for being open and, and transparent and sharing your uh, insights. And hopefully I can see you soon. Is there any last word from your end? No, just thank you very much for supporting the industry and uh, doing a lot of things uh, for, to expose 
the industry and the investors into what is happening inside iGaming. Thank you very much for that, Pierre. Awesome. Absolute pleasure. I'll continue doing it as long as I can. <laughs> Thank you very right. much. Have a Thank nice you so day. much, Shashi. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay,